0: All right, today I want to uh, talk about this very important question, what is God's goal in history? What is God's goal in history? Now, you've heard us talk about the first catechism question, which is a very important question, and that that question is, what is the chief end of mankind? In other words, what's, what's the most important goal that you should have? And the answer to that question is, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's the answer to the first catechism. But have you ever thought about what the chief end of God is? In other words, what is the most important purpose and goal that God has? He has one, but what is it? Well, today's message is going to attempt to answer this very important question. Probably, it's, it's probably the, the ultimate question. And what I want to do is kind of do a a real quick biblical theology, which is a sweep through the Bible here, okay? And so by the the time we're done here, hopefully we'll be able to answer this question together. And what I want to do is I want to look at each genre of Scripture, except for the book of Acts, and go through through every genre of literature in the Bible and find out what does the Bible itself say in regards to this very important question. And before we kind of get started here, I, I do want to really give credit and thanks to some godly men who've been influential in my own life over the years and uh, i must say i'm very thankful to pastor john piper and jonathan edwards one of them is alive and one is in heaven thank god for these these dear men who god has used in my own life that to really help me think about what is god's goal in history if you've never read uh, john piper's book desiring god i highly recommend it and then there was a follow-up book on that as well, uh, because a lot of people were asking him, uh, well, okay, I'm, I'm not desiring God as I should. That's a problem. I can see it's a problem, so what do I do now? So if, you, if you're thinking, man, I don't desire God as I should, read the follow-up book. Excellent book. Excellent book. Highly recommended. It's, it's called When I Don't Desire God. It should be in our church library. Both good books. But anyway, in, in his book, Desiring God, here's what he says. God's ultimate goal in all that He does is to preserve and display His glory. In other words, let me put it in my own words for you, okay? God is uppermost in His affections. God is uppermost in His own affections. He prizes and delights in His own glory above all other things in this universe. And so this message today is going to really present the biblical evidence for that very powerful statement, that God's ultimate goal and all He does is to preserve and display His glory. And before we do that, we really need to kind of set the stage here by talking about some terminology, some terms or phrases that that, that are going to be popping up over and over again in Scripture. Okay, let me kind of set the stage for you. What is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? We we talk about that a lot, but what is the glory of God? Well, the term Glory of God in the Bible generally refers to the visible splendor or moral beauty of God's manifold perfections. God God is perfect in many, many ways. And so it's really an attempt to put into words what no human being could ever put into, into human words. It's just not possible. God is incomprehensible. Now think about it. How do you describe what God is like in his unveiled magnificence and excellence? That's impossible! Which is why in the book of Revelation, you've got the, there's that little word over and over again in the book of Revelation It's called like. Because poor Apostle John cannot possibly describe the indescribable, so he has to use the word like to describe who Jesus is and what he does. Well, there's another term we need to talk about. It's the name of God. We're going to see that a lot today as well. What is the significance in that phrase, the name of God? When Scripture speaks of doing something for God's name's sake, it means, well, basically something very similar to doing something for His glory. Okay, Just another way of saying it. The name of God is not, by the way, it's not just a a label like, some people have on the front of their desk at work, you know. The, you, you ever seen that? Or on the door of their office. It's, it's not the same. It, it, what it is, it's a reference to God's character. The term glory simply makes more explicit what the character of God is really like. So, implicit in the term name, uh, I, should, I should say this is implicit in the, in the term name when it refers to God. So what I want to do now is kind of get a, a, a quick overview, kind of look at some of the high points of redemptive history uh, as, as God has revealed himself through the various genres of Scripture. And I, and I hope by doing this, the, the purpose that God has will become clear to you. So my aim is to help you discover this unifying goal that God has in all that he does. I want you to know God better. So in order for us to start here, I think a good place to start is to start where God starts in the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter one. Well, this, this is where God starts here in Genesis one. He starts with creation. And so uh, we're to obviously we're going to be starting the Old Testament today and work all the way to the book of Revelation very, very quickly. So let's look what uh, God says in creation. Look at uh, Genesis 1 verse 26. My point here is not to talk about the marriage debate that's going on, although this is highly significant for that. (laughs) Notice God did create male and female. He didn't make Adam and Eve, or sorry, He didn't make Adam and Steve. He made Adam and Eve. God defined marriage. We have no right to redefine it. But that's not the main point I want to talk about. The biblical story of creation reaches its climax here with the creation of man. And notice man is described here as male and female. And notice it says they they are both made in God's image. Now there's four things we need to note about this climactic act of creation. It's the last thing that God does in creation. But we We need to take note of, number one, man is created as the last of all of God's works. And so, what does that make man? It makes man the highest creature that God made. No, no other creatures on planet Earth were made in God's image. Okay, so so the animal rights people got it, they got it all backwards. Okay, they, they've got it mixed up, right? When we start putting animals on the same level as people, and sometimes even putting animals above people, that's wrong. God put man above the animals to have dominion over the animals. And number two, only man is said to be in the image of God. Nothing else is made in his image. Number three, only now that man is on the scene here in the image of God, does the, the writer, who I think is Moses, he describes the work of creation as being very good. Look at verse 31. He doesn't say this about the other parts of creation, but in verse 31 it says, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So now that man's on the scene, God says it's very good. Whereas before, he was only saying it was good. And then number four, man is given dominion or or rule, authority. and, And God commands man to subdue and then fill the earth. That's in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives us the right to be carnivores. one One of the things we can have authority and dominion there. One of the ways. So what is man's purpose here? What is man's purpose here? Well, according to the text, creation exists for man. Now, lest you think I'm a heretic, hold on a moment. But, having said that, Having said that, since God made man like Himself, man's dominion over the world and His filling of the world is is pointing to something bigger and more important. It's pointing to God. It's displaying God in His glory. Right? So the one who gives that authority is... We're really... God's using us to point to Him. So God's aim was that man would act in such a way that he would mirror forth God, who is the one who has the ultimate dominion over the earth. It's not us who has ultimate dominion. God has that ultimate dominion. And we're we're kind of like his his slaves, if you will, on this earth, acting on his behalf. So man's given the exalted status of an image-bearer, or um, as a dominion ruler but why why were we given this so that we could be arrogant and proud and do whatever we want is that why god did this no (laughs) no we're not to be autonomous or arrogant Uh, although that's what adam and eve did in genesis chapter 3 in the garden they were very arrogant and tried to be become like god but God did this so that we would reflect his glory as, as the maker of everything around us. So God's purpose in creation then wasn't just for us then, was it? Yes, we get to receive a lot of wonderful blessings as a, reu- as a result of that. But we are, the, the, God's purpose in creation is to fill the earth with his glory, not our glory. It's God's glory. Well, let's move on to a sad story in Genesis chapter 11. Because we see in Genesis chapter 11, it doesn't, it doesn't really get any better. We see God has to destroy the whole earth with a flood. That's in the previous chapters. But we come here to Genesis 11, and we have the Tower of Babel. And sadly, the earth hasn't gotten any better. And let's see what God has to do. This is even after the flood here. Look at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now this story has a point. The point of the story is to show how fallen man thought back then, and by the way, we haven't changed. We still think this way. We still think this way, Sadly. We want to make a name for ourselves. Did you see that in verse 4? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to show just how powerful and good and awesome they were. But I love the irony in this. They think think they're so awesome and so good. We're going to make this this tower reaching into the heavens, but God said he had to stoop and come down. (laughs) Don't you just love those? I love it. It's, it's hilarious. We're going to make a tower to God, but God has to come down to them and stoop to their level. <laughs> the instinct of self-preservation in us is sad. We seek to fulfill our pleasures, our lusts and ourselves by anything as seen other than trusting God himself. We want to exalt our name instead of God's name. We seem to want to employ our own human genius. It was sad. Uh, we were having lunch at work. Uh, Hamish and I were having lunch at work uh, this past week. And, and the conversation came up about the, what was it, the, the God particle. Isn't that what it was? You know, you've seen that huge atom smasher in Europe trying to come up with a God particle. That's our own human genius trying to, trying to mess around, playing with stuff that God made a long time ago, which they don't fully understand, which, of course, God does. It's really silly. And, of course, you know people like whom we work with, they, they don't understand. They, they think it's amazing stuff what they're doing, these scientists are doing, but God's not impressed, particularly when, when he's not glorified through what they're doing. So those people are just trying to make a name for themselves. And that's what was going on here at the Tower of Babel. And of course this was contrary to God's purpose for man. And so what does God do? God stoops to their level. He comes down to them and frustrates their effort by mixing up the languages. So if you're wondering where various languages came from, not all the languages came from this point, but at least the main ones did. God gave them languages so that they would spread out. And from there, people ended up going into Asia and Africa and South America and to North America. So God's purpose was that he would be given the credit for man's greatness and that man would depend on him. But they weren't doing that, so God had to judge them. Well, it doesn't stop there. I'm going to skip over um, several things for lack of time here. We could look at the call of Abraham in chapter 12, but we're not. The same purpose in in the call of Abraham is that God would make his name great through through a little insignificant idol worshiper who is a nomad in the desert. He picks a nobody who's an idol worshiper to make his name great. That's the point of the call of Abraham, but we're not going to look at that. We could also look at the book of Exodus, which we're not. And see how God displays his fame to the nations by humbling the, the mightiest nation on planet Earth at this time, which was Egypt. He takes the world's superpower and makes them look like fools so that they, they let his people go. <laughs> In fact, Pharaoh drives them out of Egypt. Get out of here! And all the people are willing for them to go because you see him lavishing them with gifts gold and silver and everything. Please leave before theres it's all gone. <laughs> I love that story. It's an awesome story. God was making his fame known to the nations. We could look at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, where God shows that he is the only one worthy to be worshipped. There is no other god. All other gods have false claim to the throne. We could look at the wilderness wanderings, which we won't. Again, God shows he's doing all of this stuff, and he's acting for the sake of his name. But eventually, God led his people, Israel, through the wilderness for 40 years. And they had to wander for 40 years because they disobeyed him. Refused to trust in him. They were looking at the giants instead of the one who was bigger than the giants. Instead of looking at the one who made the giants... They looked at their puny, puny cities in Canaan and the giants who were living in the land and said, We can't do it. So God judged them. For the next 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Well, eventually they did come back to conquer the land of Canaan. So let's look at the conquest of Canaan. We come to the next genre of literature in our Bible, which is the historical books, which starts with Joshua. The book of Joshua records for us how God gave the people of Israel victory over these various nations and lands there in Canaan. At the end of the book, we we really find a clue to why God did this for his people. Why did God do this? Look at Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Joshua 24, verse 12. God says, "I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness." Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. I want you to notice those words there. Verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord. That is an inference from God's grace. It's an inference in God's grace in, in giving something to Israel which they did not deserve. He gave them... Everything which they hadn't built. (laughs) And they walk in and they take it. They didn't deserve that. That's God's grace. The logic shows that God's purpose in giving them this, this promised land was that they might fear and honor Him alone. That's why God did it. In other words, what I'm trying to say is in giving Israel the land of Canaan, God aimed to create a people who would recognize His glory, Who would delight in him above all other things in this universe? They were to spread the fame of God. They were to be a light to the nations. Sadly, they didn't fulfill that purpose. Well, let's look at another stage of history here in our Bibles the beginning of the monarchy. The beginning of the monarchy. In the beginning, God was the king of Israel. But they wanted to be like the other nations. And so after Joshua comes Judges, they had this period of the Judges. Israel ended up asking for a king. And even though the motive for asking for the king was wrong, it was evil, it was sinful, they should not have done that, nevertheless, God didn't destroy them. And God was very gracious, in fact. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 12 uh, an act of mercy on God's part. God could have rightfully destroyed them for this wrong request to have a king as the other nations do. They had the greatest king in the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, and they, didn't, they weren't satisfied. But look what God says in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. 1 Samuel 12, 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Fear not. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are empty. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Notice why God preserves his people, Israel. Is it because they're so awesome and God can't live without them? Is that why? They're just filled with so much awesomeness, God couldn't help himself, right? Is that why? No, of course not. That's not why he did it. It was for his great name's sake. God is preserving and displaying the honor of his name. That's God's supreme goal. All right. So let's turn our attention now to the time of the kings. We'll skip over... Uh, sorry, no, I don't, I'm actually going to skip over that. We could look at that, uh, the time of the kings. Again, God is, is doing everything for his own name's sake. Uh, let's, let's skip over that. Let's go to the exile. Sadly, the nation of Israel did not only serve God. They served false gods. They ended up breaking up into the northern and southern kingdom. Eventually, God destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. under the Assyrians. And then God destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. When the uh, Babylonians, under King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded and eventually ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed everything. So the people of Judah were deported to Babylon, and it looked like God may have been through with his people Israel, but if you know Bible prophecy at all, you know that God is not done with his people yet. God is going to continue to preserve his people. But what about his holy name in all of this? What's what's happening to God's holy name? Well, we soon discover God is not finished with his people. If you read the end of your Old Testament, that's pretty obvious, because we see exile, but in the midst of the exile, God had promised restoration. He promised that they would, at least many of them, would come back to the land of Israel. Isaiah makes this clear, that God's purposes are the same as they always were. Look at uh, Isaiah 48, verse 9. Isaiah 48, verse 9, God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Did you see that? That's why God did this. He was trying them, refining them. So salvation is not a ground for boasting of our worth to God. God saves for His name's sake, for His glory. But it is an occasion for humility and joy on our part uh, as God displays His grace on our behalf. So that's one of the things we can see in the exile and the promised restoration well let's look at the post-exilic prophets because there were some prophets uh, that are mentioned in our bible who who were prophesying after the exile after they went to babylon remember persia persia conquered babylon and then king King cyrus allowed uh, many people to come back to israel so let's talk about after the exile here we have Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, they're prophesying after Israel's return from the exile. Let me just look, let's just look at a few quick verses here, okay? I'll put these on the screen for you. Each of these, by the way, are reflecting this conviction that God's goal is still his own glory. Look what Zechariah prophesied concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He says, I will be the glory in her midst. That's chapter 2, verse 5. Haggai says the same thing. He says, build the house that I may be glorified. You see why God's doing this? And then Malachi, uh, in chapter 2, he actually criticized the wicked priest. And he says, they will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. That was the problem that God had with these priests. The glory was theirs instead of going to where it belonged, which was God. By the way, we need to take warning there, lest we take the glory that belongs to God. God doesn't take kindly to that. As he said in Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another. Well, that ends the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. So moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we, we, we see the same idea coming up. Lest you think that is somehow some strange idea only in the Old Testament, that would be false. The same truth continues to go genre through genre of Scripture. Promises made in the Old Testament, promises fulfilled in the New Testament. There is a hope for Messiah in the Old Testament, and that Messiah comes in the New Testament. But in the midst of this, God's supreme goal does not change. Although there are some circumstances that that are different, yes, granted. But uh, the goal does not change. So before we move into the next section, I want to remind you what the Bible says. I want to remind you what the Bible says. We are to be Christ-like. We are to be Christ-like. Romans makes it clear in chapter 8, we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son. What I'm trying to say is we are to allow ourselves to be pressed into the mold of Jesus Christ. To think and act and talk like he does. But we've got to ask the question, then, what is Christ like? What is he like? If I'm to be like him, then what is he like? If you have the wrong mold, then whatever you press into that mold is going to come out wrong then, right? So we've got to make sure we're starting with the right mold here as we allow ourselves to be pressed into that mold. So let's look at Jesus' life and ministry when he was here on earth. Let's look at Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, particularly, we're going to look at the book of John. So you can turn to the book of John, as opposed to looking at all the books in the New Testament. We'll just take a look here at John. It gives us a quick quick glimpse of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, there's there's two texts from the Gospel of John that show the life and ministry that Jesus had. What was his purpose? What was his goal while he was here on earth? What did he actually say was his purpose and his goal? In John 17, verse 4, as he comes to the end of his life, look at Jesus' prayer here. John 17, 4. Here's what he prays. He prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So why did Jesus come? He came to do his Father's will, right? And then in John 7, 18, here's what Jesus said concerning his own ministry. Jesus said, quote, The one who speaks... On his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus is saying, "I'm not speaking of my own authority here. I'm speaking from the one who sent me. I have, a, I have the authority of my heavenly Father here." So we can say with certainty that Jesus all-consuming desire and his, his deepest Purpose on earth was to glorify his Father in heaven, which was what? But how was he going to do that? By doing his Father's will. So let me ask you how do you line up with Jesus? How Christ like are you? How Christ like are you? You concerned about the Father's will? Is that your driving passion? Is that why you think you exist? How Christ-like are you? All right. That's Jesus' life and ministry. Well, let's think about his death. Does the same same theme continue throughout Jesus' death as well? In John chapter 12, Jesus thought about escaping the hour of his death. But did he? No. (laughs) He rejected that alternative. You realize Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't have to do that. It was a gracious thing on his behalf to do that, but he did not have to. But why did he do this? Why did he go to the cross? He wanted to finish the mission that God had given to him, which was to ultimately glorify the Father. You say, where's that in the Bible? Look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 27. Here's what Jesus says. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Okay? Pretty clear, I hope. Jesus didn't escape that particular hour of suffering. Instead, he came to fulfill his purpose. The purpose of Jesus' death was what? To glorify the Father. To be willing, as the Son of God, to suffer the loss of his glory in heaven. Remember, he had all that glory. Angels worshiping him, and so forth. But he humbled himself. He became a man, lived the life that we should have lived, which none of us can do. Jesus perfectly kept the law in all points, which none of us can or ever have done. We all have worshipped other gods, which is usually ourselves. We've all lied. We've all stolen something in our lives, which if we lie, what does that make us? It makes us a liar, right? We steal something, it makes us a thief. We've all committed adultery in our hearts. What does that make us? An adulterer. We've all coveted things. That makes us covetous, right? You go through all ten, of the, all ten commandments, and God shows us we've all broken the law. We stand guilty before this holy God. We deserve eternal condemnation, and that should bother us. God sent his Son to live the life that none of us could possibly live and die the death that none of us could die because none of us are perfect. He is our substitutionary atonement. He took our place on the cross Those nails should have gone through my wrist. That crown of thorns should have gone on my head. But even if I had died on the cross, it wouldn't have paid the penalty for my sin. But when Christ died, he did pay the penalty for sin. He bore your sin on the cross. He conquered death by rising again, showing that God the Father accepted the sacrifice. And he is now our great high priest, standing at God's right hand, interceding on our behalf. So my friend, the worst news there is is that you're a sinner. And you stand condemned. You deserve to burn forever in the lake of fire. But Jesus took your place. That's the greatest news. Paid the penalty for your sin. Which, remember, the Bible says, what is the penalty for your sin? It's death. Eternal death? That's the worst kind of death. Jesus paid that penalty. So the judge now says... You're free to go. The fine has been paid for. Paid in full. And so now, not only are we... Are we, we God not only makes us innocent through the imputed righteousness of Christ, but you now, have, you now have Christ. And all the rights and the privileges that come with adoption into God's family. So my friend, it's a, it's a, it's a glorious thing. What Christ did... So the purpose of his death and all of that was to bring glory to his Father. But what do we usually think about? It was it, usually the gospel is man-centered, isn't it? You know, it's as if Christ couldn't help himself. You know, he loves us so much, which he does. Yes, the, God loves the world, so he sent his Son. That's true. But it's not just about us, okay? God was doing just fine without human beings in this universe, before he ever created us. So he didn't save us because we're somehow, you know, there's some spark of divinity within us, and we're just so awesome that he just couldn't help himself. God saved us and sent his son to glorify himself. So in order to vindicate the honor of his name and the worth of his glory... There had to be a sacrifice. That's the way it's always been. It's it's, it's always been that way since the beginning. Blood had to be sacrificed. That's what God did in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. What did he do? He kills an animal. He closed them. The animal had to die. Blood had to be shed to cover them. It's always been that way. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So the death of Christ shows God's love for us. But... In the midst of this, let's not become too man-centered here and think it's all about us, because it's not. We need to be God-centered. God does what he does for his honor and his glory. All right, let's, let's kind of change gears a little bit, and let's think about the Christian life. Let's think about the Christian life for a moment, okay? God's passion for his glory, it leads inevitably to the conclusion that God's purpose for the church is that our life goal should be to glorify God. That should be our life goal. We, we often talk about 1 Corinthians 10.31. We, we know it. But let, let's read it together quickly here. Here's what it says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay, Do we really know what that means, though? Do all to the glory of God? That is your life purpose. That's why you exist. That's why God keeps you alive. That's why you're breathing air. (laughs) And you can even do the little and insignificant things of life, even something like drinking and eating, working, gardening, walking, sleeping, whatever you can think of, those things can be done to the glory of God. Well, except sinning. Course. you can't do that to the glory of god but as long as it's not sinning you can do all those things god says all those things to the glory of god and you should well that's not a one-off in the new testament peter shows the goal of our service to god in first peter 4 verse 11 where he says whoever serves let him do it as one who serves by the strength that god supplies in order that in everything god may be glorified through jesus christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. In everything God may be glorified. That's what Peter says. Well, look what Jesus says when Jesus was instructing his disciples and what their goals should be in their daily life. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, let's think about what the last book in your Bible says. Actually, we'll look at at Thessalonians before we get to that. So let's think about the second coming of Christ in heaven. Because that's where the Bible ends, right? Ends with the eternal state. Let's think about the second coming of Christ in in heaven. All right. In 2 Thessalonians, the the second coming of Christ is described as something that uh, brings great hope. But at the same time, it's, it's also a terror to the unbeliever. Because Christ is coming again. And when he does, <laughs> Ooh, watch out, the Battle of Armageddon is not a place you want to be as an unbeliever. So Paul says of those who do not believe the gospel here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, here's what he says. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his, saints, in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So it's great hope, but it's also a terror to the unbeliever. But the Bible says that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back not only to affect the final salvation, if you will, Ultimate glorification. But through his salvation, it says, notice, if you see there, it says, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. This is one of the reasons he's coming back. He wants to be marveled at, and he deserves to be marveled at. By the way, let me just side note here. Because I have heard people say, man... God is very proud and arrogant. He wants to be marveled at. He wants all of the glory and honor. Wow, that's very proud and arrogant. And people say, man, if I did that, you'd, you'd, say, you'd say I was proud and arrogant, right? Okay, But I hope you see a big difference between us and God. <laughs> God's holy, we're not. Right? God's distinct and separate and unique from His creation. In every way, God is the best. I mean, he's he's the biggest, he's the most awesome, he's the most beautiful, he's the most powerful, he's the most intelligent. He's everywhere, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, eternal, and so forth, right? In all ways, God is the best. There there is nothing better than God. So to, 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 to say that he deserves the glory and the honor and the praise is totally appropriate. You don't get any better than him. But on the other hand, to, to say worshiping us as human beings, well that's, well, that's blasphemy. That's what that is. We're not worthy of worship. So yes, if any man or any human being claims to have any of that kind of praise, then yes, he is proud and he is arrogant. But God is not. God deserves all praise, honor, glory, and worship. So we see here that Jesus Christ is coming back to, so that he'd be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Well, the last book in your Bible talks about the, 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 uh, the climax of history, if you will. The Apostle John pictures the New Jerusalem here in, at the end of the book of Revelation. The New Jerusalem's is the, the capital city of heaven. And notice that the Bible says it actually comes down out of heaven, down to the new earth, because God has to destroy this present earth we live on because it's cursed by sin. So God's just going to take this earth you and I live on and take it out of existence. Gone, because it's cursed by sin. Romans says the creation is groaning because of sin. So God will destroy it, make a new earth, new heavens, and this Jerusalem, the capital city, where all believers will reside and live, will come down out of heaven, down to the new earth. And then ushers, that ushers in the eternal state. And that's where the Bible ends. And it talks about the glorified church who will inhabit the new Jerusalem. Here's what the Bible says, right? Look at this, Revelation 21, 23. It says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's capital L, Lamb. Jesus Christ. So God the Father, God the Son are, of course, there in heaven. Notice there is, there's no artificial light in heaven. It, it, it never gets dark. There's no power outages in heaven. <laughs> right? God the Father, God the Son, they're the light of the heaven. And Christians are going to live there for all eternity. It's the perfect conclusion to God's goal in history. And what is that goal in history? What is God's goal in history? What is He doing? He is displaying His glory for everyone to see and to praise. Let me ask you the question again. What may we conclude from this particular survey of history, of biblical history. What may we conclude from this? Again, have you answered the ultimate question we started with? That ultimate question is, what is God's goal? What is the chief end of God? Well, we may conclude from what the Bible says that the chief end or the chief purpose or goal of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. That's his primary goal. And rightfully so, because he stands supreme at the center of his own affections. And for that very reason, God is self-sufficient and an inexhaustible fountain of grace. So what do we do? What do we do with this awesome truth? As we learn who God is, what he's doing, he is displaying his glory amongst the nations of this earth, he is accomplishing his purposes, which his primary purpose, his chief end, is to display himself, to bring glory to himself. What do we do with that? Well, number one, my friend, you must worship God and only God. Because there are no other gods. Don't make idols of your heart. Don't allow your, one, one reformer called our hearts an idol factory. Our heart is an idle factory. We want to worship ourselves and create other things. We want to suppress the truth, as Romans 1 says. Love God with all. And then trust Him. Fully trust Him. Not just for salvation, but trust Him with everything in life. Even the so-called little things that we, we tend to kind of gloss over and think, well, I don't need to pray about that. I don't need to see God's face and His wisdom on that. No, trust Him in all of the, even the little things of life. Obey Him. When God says, do this, don't do this, obey Him. Be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. And serve Him. He is worthy of worship. A God whom, whom, if you're a believer, God says in Scripture, you will serve Him in heaven. And you will have that glorious privilege of serving Him. And then live supremely for God's glory. And all you do, everything you do, whether it's, it's at the workplace, at home, whether you come to a church meeting, whether you're exercising, whether you're doing your hobby or whatever it may be, live supremely for God's glory. You can but the question is are you thinking that way are you even thinking about it usually we don't my friend pray pray for god to give you that kind of a heart that you're that you first of all that he is supremely involved in your choices and how you use your money how you use god's time so that he would be glorified